How do you infuse the story of a contemporary marriage with ancient mythology? Lauren Groff will join us to talk about her new novel, Fates and Furies. My characters do things that I would hope that I and my husband would never, ever do. But I think that they both have this feeling that if they hadn't found one another, they might not have ever gotten married. How did a man go from being a moderate American imam to an al-Qaeda terrorist? Scott Shane will talk about his new book, Objective Troy, A Terrorist, A President, and the Rise of the Drone. Was this guy some kind of sleeper agent of al-Qaeda? Was he in on the plot? And so the FBI decided to surveil him 24 hours a day, followed him everywhere. Alexander Alter will fill us in on the latest in the literary world. Greg Coles has bestseller news. And we'll let readers and listeners ask a few questions for us editors here at The Book Review. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Lauren Groff joins us now from Florida. She is the author of two novels previously, The Monsters of Templeton and Arcadia, and a story collection, Delicate Edible Birds. And she now has a new book, Fates and Furies, getting a lot of attention and reviewed this week on our cover. Hi, Lauren. Hi. So this is a book um, about marriage, and uh, you just confessed to me, and I'm going to have you confess to all our listeners, that you read the review, um, which was written by Robin Black on our cover, um, but you don't usually read reviews. Why did you decide to read this one? I never, never, never read reviews because they just get into my head, and I start either believing them or fighting them. Um, and that's just killer. Uh, so, but I read this one because my husband called me and he said, you must read it because he had tears in his eyes. So I read it and Robin, I got so lucky. You know, sometimes you get just lucky with your reviewers and Robin Black completely got my project, I think, in a way that um, is so rare. And so it feels just like a hand from the sky came down and patted me on the head. <laughs> so it was it was truly, truly lovely and wonderful, um, and I felt as if I had to read it because he cried a little bit, my husband. I'm going to read just a little bit of that uh, review aloud here. Um, Robert Black says, uh, calls you a writer of rare gifts, and Fates and Furies is an unabashedly ambitious novel that delivers with comedy, tragedy, well-deployed erudition, and unmistakable glimmers of brilliance throughout. No small praise. Um, And I wanted you to tell that story about your husband because this is a book about marriage. Uh, I think of this as a book about marriage in the same way that um, a bomb is about its casing, which means that it's it's something that encases um, the explosion on the inside, but it's it's not necessarily really about marriage, right? It carries, uh, the marriage carries what the book is um, trying to talk about, which is, you know, creativity and privilege and time and sex, death, you know, all sorts of other things as well. I write multiple projects at once because it's absolutely terrifying to imagine getting to the end of five years of writing something and finding that it doesn't work at all. So I was writing this book while I was writing Arcadia, which is my previous novel. And I am fascinated by communities. And Arcadia was about this utopian community and I thought, what could be the smallest community on the planet? And it is an intimate relationship. Uh, so I started getting really, really interested in both the very internal, very intimate part of marriage, but also the sort of larger performative external facing part of marriage. I thought that it was just fascinating to see uh, how they played together. 
And in truth, I, I'm in a very beautiful marriage. I, I feel very lucky, but I am incredibly ambivalent about it uh, as an institution. And a lot of it comes from just what marriage has been in history. You know, it's been a way to basically sell young women to, so that they can have babies. Um, and I also resist a lot of the roles that I think people just assume that wives and husbands are to play nowadays, too. So I went into this thinking, wow, I'm very, very ambivalent about this institution that I am benefiting from deeply, and that is something to, to look at more more deeply over the course of years. Did that ambivalence infuse, does that ambivalence infuse the novel? Yeah, I believe so. I believe that ambivalence infuses the novel because, uh, you know, my characters do things that I would hope that I and my husband would never, ever do. Um, but I think that they both have this feeling that, you know, if they hadn't found one another, they might not have ever gotten married, uh, you know, in, in another way, too. So for them, it's a an, a personal choice that they lucked out on. And, and I don't think either of them believe that they would have been able to find a happy marriage. Also, you know, I, I did want to set myself the challenge of writing about a happy marriage because most marriages in most novels are deeply unhappy. Right. There's a tradition. <laughs> tradition, right, exactly. Well, tell us about this marriage without giving any spoilers. Who, um, who is the husband, Lotto, and his wife, Mathilde? So the husband, Lotto, is uh, very Floridian in very many ways. And I, can, I feel as if I can say that because I've been here for nine years. It's just a very different land. Um, Where were you coming from? Uh, I come from upstate New York, which in, is its own place. You know, it's, it's cold and uh, hilly, and Florida is incredibly hot and flat. Uh, and I think landscape really does reflect itself in character in certain ways. So Lotto comes from Florida. He's he's raised in privilege. He's seen as this beautiful, blessed creature by everyone around him, and he internalizes that. And uh, he thinks that he's an actor, but he never succeeds at acting. And he is supported by his wife, whom he meets very, very young in college. Her name is Mathilde, and she uh, seems, um, at least in the beginning of the book, to be the perfect wife, and she helps guide him into a life as a playwright, which is far more suited to his skills and talents. Um, and that's where I'm going to end it, because if I if I say any more, I might give away. Inadvertently. Well, one thing I think uh, is not a big giveaway, uh, because it's so fundamental to the book, is, is the structure, which I think, you know, in an odd way, um, is similar to Gone Girl. Um, and it's sort of he said, she said format. Talk a little bit about how you chose to structure the book. So I loved Gone Girl, but I actually didn't read it until very late in the book. Um, and in fact, I, I had thought that I was writing two very separate books. I thought I was writing Fates, and then, you know, six months later, out would come Furies. Uh, because I, I've been influenced by Jean Gardam, who is amazing, and she's not as well-known as she should be, uh, and Evan S. Connell, who wrote Mr. Bridge and Mrs. Bridge. They, these are extraordinary books that I would urge everybody to read. Um, so I, I believe that I was writing two books, and then I gave uh, the book to my agent, and he said, you're insane, Lauren, which is what a good agent does. <laughs> And I'm I'm really happy that I did uh, write the uh, eventually unite the book because it does seem to me that the the mode of the storytelling reflects what is being told. You know, it's 
two individuals within a single unity, which is what marriage is also. But what I did in the, what I very deliberately built um, a kind of story structure in the first part that I tried to shatter in the second part. Well, we won't go beyond that um, okay. <laughs> uh, in terms of specifics. But you did mention um, Evan Connell and also Jane Gardam in your book. In the acknowledgments, you also mention um, Thomas Mann and Shakespeare uh, as sort of providing inspiration for this book. In what ways? Oh, my goodness. Well, there's a part of the book that is very clearly modeled on a Thomas Mann book, and I'm, I'm not going to say any more, but um, I, I took delight in reflecting on that. Um, one person I did not mention, and I really regret not mentioning her, is Ann Carson, and she had a huge influence on this book, and I feel as if I should really write her a letter and tell her this. <laughs> I, I take a lot of pleasure in putting everything that I'm reading at the time into the books that I'm writing. You also uh, incorporate Greek mythology. I do. But, you know, again, I wanted to uh, make sure that people who don't know anything at all about Greek mythology can still read the book with as much pleasure as possible. So it's sort of a, an aquifer underneath the surface in a certain way. Um, Greek mythology speaks to what is happening philosophically in both halves of the novel. And it, I took so much joy in this. I mean, this is a deep, deep pleasure uh, to sort of reflect on the idea of the hero, the Greek hero, uh, which I tried to set Lado up as, or to reflect, reflect a little bit on um, the ideas of the fates and the furies. I feel like there's a lot of symbolism in his name, Lotto, uh, and his that's his nickname, also his real name, Lancelot. How did you uh, choose the names for the characters? What's funny is I almost changed it because I didn't want there to be that symbolism because I really just like the name Lotto. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I'm and I'm sure that that is going to be a critique leveled at me at a certain point, which is totally welcome. Um, but he, he believes that he is an agent of fate, um, and as you know, the fates are the daughters of necessity. They're the people closer, like Lachesis and Atropos. Um, there's the spinner who spins out one's life. Um, Lachesis is the measure who measures sort of the span of your life, and Atropos cuts off the life at the end. They're, they're in charge of destiny and not just humans destiny the destiny of the gods everybody is is subject to to the fates and i like the idea of these secret spinners behind uh, everything that we do and everything that we are I, I thought that was really joyous um if we want to talk about the furies too I, you know maybe possibly they're less they have less of a, an imprint on the book but i think that matilde is filled with their spirit. I mean, they're the chthonic goddesses of vengeance. I love them, you know, <laughs> particularly because heroines in our best books, our most classic books, do not act out outside of themselves. Mm -hmm. They take anger inside and they sort of implode themselves. I mean, if you look at Anna Karenina or Emma Bovary, you know, they end up committing suicide. They don't end up rocking the world. Um, and and I wanted to look at female rage in a certain sense, because it also seems to me, it announces itself to me through my friends and my family and myself 
on a daily basis, and I also feel, felt that um, that hasn't really been talked about all that much. Although it's, it's beginning, I think, to be talked about more, at least uh, written about more um, yeah. in novels recently. I want to go back to something you said earlier, um, that you were writing this simultaneously with Arcadia. I thought when you said you worked on more than one thing at a time that you were going to say that you would put the novel down and then write a short story, but that's quite something to be simultaneously writing two novels. Does that not get confusing? It doesn't get confusing to me just because the the project's always so very different and in a lot of ways I'm working against what I'm doing uh, with the, the other book. And, and at some point I am working on stories instead of novels, but whatever it is, I'm working on two things at once. And what that does is it, it's all, it almost acts as a battery in a certain way where you... Um, you recharge between the two and they speak to one another and it becomes, um, it fills you with energy as opposed to sapping your energy, or at least me. Um, and I also don't feel quite as bad about throwing out pages, which I do on a daily basis. It doesn't make me feel sad or reluctant. It's actually just this very exciting thing. It leads to a one uh, obvious final question, which is while you were writing Fates and Furies, then were you in turn working on your next novel at the same time? I am working on my next novel. I think it's a novel. I'm not quite sure what it is at the moment, but uh, I'm also working on stories and I'm uh, working on a nonfiction thing, too. I believe it's nonfiction. Right now, everything is a little bit up in the air because I, while a book is being published, I become uh, a stranger to myself and I get very anxious and I'm unable to sit for long periods of time. So I'm working, meaning I'm reading a lot and I'm writing down lots of notes, but I'm not actively sitting here for hours. All right. Well, we'll find out more precisely what you mean by all that the next time you come on the podcast. (laughs) Lauren, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Lauren Groth is the author most recently of Fates and Furies, which is reviewed this week on our cover by Robin Black. Alexandra Alter joins us with notes from the publishing world. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. I I have a terrible feeling you're going to share bad news with us this week. I'm afraid you're right. The publishing world is talking about Barnes & Noble's latest earnings report, which was a little bit disappointing and sort of in line with what we've seen recently for the company. Um, It's the last big bookstore chain standing, of course, since Borders closed a few years ago, and it's struggling for all the same reasons. It's hard to compete with Amazon, which accounts for 40% of the overall book market. And keeping all the stores open is expensive. They're continuing to close stores. They closed 13 last year, and we'll continue to do that. And Didn't so they just close one in Bayside, Queens? That's right. Yeah, they did close one in Bayside, Queens. Um, and they said in the last quarter they actually only closed one store, but they said that they expect to you know, have to continue to do that. And, of course, that brings sales down when you don't have those physical stores there. The picture was was pretty bad. The revenue overall fell 1.5% compared to last year, and the net loss increased to $34.9 million, up from $28 million the previous year. Do you have anything good to add here? <laughs> yes. There were some, some strong sellers in the last period. There was Harper Lee's Ghost at a Watchman and E.L. James Gray, and adult coloring books have been a big boon for Barnes & Noble because those are obviously such a physical phenomenon. People have you want, colored yet? I still haven't found time to 
to color. I'm too busy writing about coloring You're books to You're supposed to, to write in your books, them. not read them, Alexandra. <laughs> Have the sales for Ghost Set of Watchmen and Gray met expectations? Yeah, I mean, there were big printings, and they sold through those and printed more. So I think they were pretty much in line with expectations. And that was a big boost to Barnes & Noble, which, you know, had last year had books like John Green's The Fault in Our Stars and Veronica Roth's trilogy, things that were um, had big movie tie-ins. So that's always helpful for bookstores. But one of the other problems that they have is, is the Nook, which was supposed to be the solution for them. That was their answer to the Kindle. It was going to give them a toehold in the digital marketplace, and it just hasn't delivered. It's been a constant drag. Sales are way down, and they've plowed you know, so much money into it, and it just hasn't hasn't worked out. I think we just need to download books directly into our brains. <laughs> find, let's find the, the gadget ch- for that. If there was a chip for that. But you did ask for some good news. And unfortunately, it's not coming from Barnes & Noble, but independents are still doing fairly well, which is a surprising trend. It's a reversal from, you know, about a decade ago. Uh, their numbers are up. Their sales are up. There is about 1,700 independent stores around the country now, up from 1,400 five years ago, according to the Association of American Booksellers. You know, they're benefiting a lot, I think, from the decline of ebook sales and the resurgence of print. I'll take it. Yes. Thanks, okay. Alexandra. You're welcome. Scott Shane joins us now from Washington. He is a national security reporter for The New York Times and author of a new book, Objective Troy, A Terrorist, A President, and the Rise of the Drone. Hi, Scott. Hi, Pamela. What is it exactly that you report on as a national security reporter for The Times, and how long have you been on that beat? Well, I've been covering uh, national security really since 9-11, like a lot of reporters, but at the time since 2004. I have to say that terrorism, counterterrorism, uh, has been the overwhelming part of, of what I've covered. Uh, you know, the other aspects of national security, including espionage and that kind of thing, have occasionally popped up. But um, terrorism, as in so many other areas of, uh, of government in the last 15 years, have really dominated our beat. And this book, which I will identify, the terrorist is Anwar al-Awlaki and the president, uh, obviously, Barack Obama. Um, is this a subject that you covered for the paper and then it became a book? Or was this sort of separate from what you were doing for The Times? No, it was very much something that I covered for The Times. I first wrote about Anwar al-Awlaki uh, in 2009 after he, it turned out he was in correspondence with Nidal Hassan, the army psychiatrist who shot up Fort Hood and killed 13 people in November 2009. That was sort of when he drew attention in his terrorism phase. He had a much earlier, he had an earlier phase as a fairly well-known imam uh, in the U.S. But that's when I first started paying attention to him. And actually, Dean Baquet, then the Washington bureau chief, now our top editor suggested that I take some time and really take a hard look at this guy. So I spent several months looking at him in 2010. Uh, this was at a time when Obama had put him on the kill list, so, so-called. Um, in other words, given the authorization to target him with a drone strike, but he was still on the lam in Yemen at that time. And I visited the mosques where Awlaki had preached in the U.S., in Denver, in San Diego, and outside Washington and Falls Church, Virginia. Talked to people who knew him then, 
and wrote a, a fairly long story in May of 2010 about his his life and and sort of uh, how he how he'd come to join Al Qaeda. And at what point? And I want I'll go back to um, his life because it is such a fascinating one. But at what point did you say to yourself, okay, this is not just something I'm reporting on for the Times, but I want to write a book about this? I guess that was probably in 2013 when I kind of had this desire to find a way to sum up the uh, previous decade plus that I had spent covering this subject of terrorism, counterterrorism. And I wanted to find a way to do it as a story with a character. From my own reporting, I knew that no one really uh, sort of summed up the era as clearly and in some ways as perplexingly as Anwar al-Awlaki because folks may remember that a couple of the 9-11 hijackers had actually prayed at the mosque that where he was imam in San Diego before the 9-11 attacks. That led to an FBI investigation um, and a lot of concern after the attacks that perhaps Awlaki had been on the plot, been in on the plot. The FBI concluded that he was not, but Awlaki then, after 9-11, became very prominent preaching at this mosque outside Washington, and then finally, you know, ended up spending his last years with al-Qaeda plotting to kill Americans. So his life sort of posed in a particularly acute fashion the, the question of how does someone come to devote themselves to killing a lot of innocent strangers. Uh, and at the same time, you had Obama coming in and uh, with my colleague Joe Becker. I had spent some time in 2012 looking at Obama's counterterrorism record and how he came to embrace the drone. So those two threads kind of came together. And uh, after Aleki was killed at the end of September in 2011, um, I think I began kind of mulling the idea. Then in 2013, I really, um, you know, sort of sat down, and wrote a proposal, and got serious about it. Actually, I wrote a book earlier. I was a Moscow correspondent for the Baltimore Sun from 1988 to 1991. I had studied Russian uh, in college and actually in what was then Leningrad, and actually got into journalism in part to be able to live in Russia. So I wrote a book on the Soviet collapse that was published in 94 called Dismantling Utopia. And it was actually that experience of sort of using a book as a way to sum up, uh, you know, a, a kind of frantic period of reporting that made me want to try, try and do something similar with terrorism and counterterrorism. Does it help you in a way sort of to stepping back from the daily reporting and thinking about this as a as a long form narrative to kind of make sense of what I imagine are very tight deadline stories one after the other? Yes, it really does. I mean, it's a luxury to be able to have long conversations, sit down and have long conversations with people who you might have grabbed on the phone for five minutes um, on, a, on a news story. And uh, you know, I was able to go to Yemen, which has not been easy in recent years, but I was sort of a window when I managed to get a visa and uh, spend a couple of weeks there and talk to 
Anwar Awlaki's father, his younger brother, his uncle, and others who knew him, uh, tribal leaders and, and uh, various people who could shed light on this story. Um, but it really is a luxury. I also had a chance to sort of get fight, fight for some documents that shed more light on certain turns that his life took. So, you know, for a reporter, it's, it really is a pleasure to work on something this long. Um, there are three sort of main stories, it seems, in the book. There's um, obviously the story of um, Anwar al-Awlaki, the story of Barack Obama's sort of uh, shift from being opposed to many of the counterterrorism practices of his predecessor to a person who has used drone warfare in his administration, and also the story of the drones. But I want to talk about um, al-Awlaki. For those who did not read the excerpt that the magazine did of the book, can you tell us a little bit about this person and how he went from being, as you said, an, uh, a moderate imam after 9-11 to a terrorist. He, he was a kid of a, a Yemeni technocrat who was very successful, became agriculture minister and chancellor of a university, founded another university in Yemen, and he wanted Anwar, his, uh, his oldest child, to follow in, in his footsteps. So he, uh, Anwar had been born, in fact, in the United States when his father was a grad student in the States. And so he sent him back at the age of 19 to go to Colorado State and study engineering. But Anwar really never took an interest in engineering. He did finish the degree and, and under pressure from his father, he briefly did a, an engineering job. But he had discovered a knack for preaching and an interest in Islam while in college. And so he decided to follow that path uh, he So he worked in Denver, he worked in San Diego, where he got his own mosque for the first time. And, you know, he built quite a reputation in a short time and was invited to take the imam job at a very large mosque right outside D.C. Uh, called Dar al-Hijra. And he arrived there in early 2001. So just, you know, as it turned out, nine months before... Uh, 9-11. And already before 9-11, he had built quite a reputation. He'd built a business, a uh, very successful business, selling um, boxed CD sets of his lectures. For example, he did a, four, a 53 CD uh, box on the life of the Prophet Muhammad, which is still uh, available. It was extremely popular in among English-speaking Muslims. Many Families still have it in their glove compartment or in their living room. And it was all mainstream stuff, stories from the Quran, stories from, the, uh, from Islamic history. But the FBI starts to surveil him. Yes. Well, what happens is 9-11 comes along. You know, the FBI scrambles to find out who these hijackers were, and they discover that two of the hijackers had prayed in his mosque in San Diego, and other congregants remembered thought they remembered Alaki meeting with one of these guys in his office uh, from time to time. So this raised the question of, you know, was this guy some kind of sleeper agent of al-Qaeda? Was he in on the plot? And so the FBI decided to surveil him 24 hours a day, followed him everywhere. Within a few months, they were pretty well satisfied that he was not a terrorist. They They didn't pick up any evidence of terrorism. Uh, in this surveillance, which also involved monitoring his phone calls. But they discovered that he was regularly visiting prostitutes in the Washington area. 
um, arranging these meetings through escort services. And they actually, you know, there are documents that show they kind of mold the possibility of charging him uh, with crimes related to prostitution, decided not to do that. But it turned out uh, there were, you know, it's sort of the law of unintended consequence. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a Homeland subplot that this ended up. Very much. I mean, what happened was Aleki was riding high. I mean, he was uh, out on the speaking circuit. He was interviewed by the New York Times. He was interviewed by the Washington Post. He was on PBS. He was becoming a national media figure and sort of playing a role that, as he described in a sermon, um, he said, we, meaning American Muslims, can be the bridge between the United States and a billion Muslims worldwide. So he was sort of carving out this sort of middleman role very successfully. And what happened was, at that point, in March of 2002, was he got a call from the manager of one of these escort services who told him, I just had a visit from the FBI. They know, you know, they talked to me about your visit to prostitutes. They know the whole story. They've talked to prostitutes. And he had no idea that the FBI was following him around and, and watching this stuff. And it completely shattered him. It happened that his younger brother was visiting at the time, and and he made the decision to leave the U.S. and uh, move to, U- to the U.K. He came back for one brief visit later in 2002, but he basically settled in the U.K. And there was a much more radical atmosphere in the circles that he was moving in in the, in, in the U.K., much more tolerance for radical rhetoric. And I think it's fair to say that that sort of set him on the road that ended with al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula in Yemen when he became, uh, you know, certainly the leading English-language propagandist for al-Qaeda worldwide. I mean, this book is is not only, um, as your subtitle says, about the terrorist, um, Aulaki in this case, uh, but also about Obama and about his progression or shift over time from someone who was opposed to many of the uh, sort of harder counterterrorism practices of George W. Bush to someone who was, um, if not an enthusiastic uh, supporter of certainly someone who used drone warfare. How did that transformation take place? Well, you know, what what I found was that it was not so much a transformation. I mean, you, you know, sort of a lot of people ex- would have expected that Obama would not be such, such an aggressive user of drones. But as it turns out, he'd taken an interest in drones uh, as a senator. And as he began to run for president, contemplate, what he was going to inherit, uh, you know, what he had said famously in his anti-Iraq war speech in 2002, uh, repeatedly was that he was not against all wars, he was only against dumb wars. And he was inheriting two big wars in Afghanistan and Iraq that, you know, had gone on for more or less a decade, uh, that had cost thousands of American lives and perhaps hundreds of thousands of civilian lives. And he, you know, he saw his job as winding them down. They had not, in his view, in many people's view, you know, their, their effect on the terrorist threat was equivocal. Um, possibly they had radicalized as many people as they had killed. And so he did not think that was the answer. And he began to think, I mean, he's a guy who's uh, very interested in technology. He began to think that maybe the drone was the answer. Uh, he, he, wanted, he realized he couldn't ignore the terrorist threat. And he often said to aides, let's kill the people who are trying to kill us. 
by which, by which he meant, let's get out of these big wars and let's focus on the relatively tiny number of people who really pose a serious threat to the United States. So when he inherited Bush's, uh, you know, really kind of nascent uh, drone war, he escalated it sharply in Pakistan and expanded it to Yemen, eventually to Somalia on a smaller scale. I think to this day he would say that it did a lot of good in terms of dismantling al-Qaeda, al-Qaeda's leadership, and making uh, America safer. I think he would also acknowledge, as many of his aides certainly acknowledge, that you know there, it's come with a whole lot of baggage and a whole lot of, um, of negative consequences as well. Um, you cover a huge amount of territory in the book, obviously 10 years of, of reporting um, and then research for the book. So we can't go into all of it. But I just want to go back to um, earlier, you said that you uh, went to Yemen as part of the research um, for the book. What was that like? And, and how helpful was that in terms of getting a, a broader, deeper understanding of the subject? Well, Yemen is a wonderful country. I loved it there. I'd love to go back. I'd love to take my family. Um, but it is a real mess now and and was then it's worse now because it's really an open warfare then there was some fighting going on and you know you heard um, bombs go off and things and kidnapping was was the big danger that then uh, and probably now as well but if you were a foreign a westerner you, you were automatically a target for kidnapping and there were folks kidnapped while I was there but it was really crucial to to see uh, what I saw, and particularly crucial to meet Anwar Awliki's father, his younger brother, who, uh, you know, I guess officially still is. The, the government's sort of fallen apart, but until recently he was the deputy minister of water and the environment in Yemen. And his uncle, who's a wealthy guy with a, with a villa in Aden on the, on the Arabian Sea. And all of them were just crucial in trying to tell the story of Anwar al-Awlaki. You know, part of my goal was to tell a human story. Um, this may be a guy who a lot of Americans despised at the end of his life, and for good reason. But you kind of have to understand where did he come from. And, you know, it's a, it was a rare opportunity to actually track a terrorist's life from, from beginning to end. Well, it's a fascinating subject. The book, again, is Objective Troy, A Terrorist, A President, and the Rise of the Drone by Scott Shane. Scott, thank you so much. Hey, thanks so much for having me. John Williams joins us now, representing the listeners, readers, tweeters, people posting on Facebook. Facebookers. Hi, John. Hi. So uh, this week we asked of our readers and listeners, what question? We asked them what they thought the best book about work was because we asked this on our bookends page in the back of the book review this weekend. And we got a lot of answers. I think the bookenders took it as a literary question and most of our readers and listeners did too. Um, although there were some practical answers. Anjanette Lau answered Knowing Your Value by Mika Brzezinski. It changed the way I worked, including how I advise my clients on how they create their brand. So that's a very practical book about work. Ah, so they, they thought of it as like a how to work kind of thing. Exactly. But I think the majority of people were thinking like we were 
more about books like, for instance, Joshua Ferris's And Then They Came to the End, which was mentioned on Twitter by Polly. And that's a very funny and I think very accurate book about how young people relate to each other in cubicles. Katie Adams, an editor here in New York uh, named Department of Speculation, one of our best books last year by Jenny Ophel, which in which a, uh, a woman sort of struggles to get back to work after having a child and mm-hmm. thinks about its role in her life. Um, another nonfiction book that I also agree with and would not have thought of comes on Twitter from a reader named Litza Germausis, and she says, it's not necessarily the best, but it's my favorite. Live from New York, an uncensored history of Saturday Night Live. And that was a lot of fun and a very behind-the-scenes look at how that show is put together. More fun job than most. Definitely. And some people denied, I think, that the very idea of there being great books about work, like the person who tweets under the funny handle, Paul Harvey Lives, he says, a similar question, what's the best book you've ever read about having fingernails ripped out? (laughs) So he does not like his job. He prefers just tweeting. We had one answer on Facebook uh, that I thought was interesting because I expected more people to say it, which is Deborah Cleves, who uh, answered Stud Turkle's Working, which is the sort of oral history of people talking about life on their jobs. That is such a great book. And it's yeah. it's such an interesting historical document because half those jobs don't exist anymore. Exactly. I feel like we should do it every 50 years or so just to create the historical record of what people's lives are actually like for when they disappear. So, John, what's your favorite book about work? You know, I have to agree, I, I think, with, with the person who named Joshua Ferris's first novel because I just thought that that was a very funny uh, – it got at some of the existential longing of work but also made you laugh, which is a hard thing to do. To laugh about work? To laugh about the existential crises at work, yeah. We laugh a lot around here, luckily. <laughs> what, what, what about you? I think I have characters that I like from, from literary workplaces. Um, I'm sure I'm not alone um, in calling out Bartleby as one of my favorites. I think I like um, – Maybe it's because I'm such a docile, pliant employee, but <laughs> I like the rebellious ones. So I like Ignatius Riley. I like Bartleby. I like I like workers who don't want to work. <laughs> you live vicariously through them. You're such a hard worker. <laughs> and readers and listeners and tweeters and Facebookers can continue to follow our questions for them on Twitter. We are at at NY Times Books. And on Facebook now, we are at facebook.com slash NYT Books. All right. Thanks, John. Thanks, Pamela. Greg Coles joins us now with bestseller news. Hi, Greg. Hi, Pamela. What's new in fiction? There's quite a lot new on the hardcover fiction list this week. Starting down at number 11, Christine Fian continues her dark series, uh, paranormal romance about a species called the Carpathians, with a book called Dark Ghost, new at number 11. Then at number nine, Clive Cussler and his co-writer Russell Blake also continue a series. This is the Fargo Adventure series. Um, with a book called The Solomon Curse. Then at number eight, Danielle Steele with a standalone book uh, called Undercover, a romantic suspense novel. Uh, Up at number four, more series action uh, from Chuck Wendig continuing the Star Wars series with a book called Star Wars Aftermath. This is all a big run-up to the new reboot of the movies. Yeah, we we thought they were done after the last three, and uh, they are not done. (laughs) <laughs> um, but, of course, the book universe, so to speak, of Star Wars um, has far outpaced the movies. There, there's, um, you know, just handfuls and handfuls of Star Wars books out there. And there's kid versions of this particular series, too, I think. I think you're right. All right. Uh, then uh, at number two, Jonathan Franzen returns to the list with his latest novel, Purity. 
Uh, and finally, at number one, another series, although not by its original author, um, David Lagerkrantz continues Stig Larsson's Millennium series. That's the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo series. Um, the latest book in that series uh, is called The Girl in the Spider's Web. Um, it was reviewed in our cover, of course, by, by Lee, Lee Child. Child. Yes, it was. <laughs> What's going on with nonfiction? Nonfiction, there are four new titles. Down at number 12, Sean Naylor has a book called Relentless Strike that looks at the Joint Special Operations Command, uh, which takes on the War on Terror. Then uh, at number 11, Linda Hirschman has written about Sandra Day O'Connor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg as the first women on the Supreme Court, a book called Sisters in Law. Are you surprised to see that on the list? Not especially. It's It's gotten some really great reviews, um, good attention, uh, NPR, in the New York Times and uh, other places. Um, and people like Supreme Court books. Um, books by the justices themselves turn up on the list sporadically. Um, and other books, you know, The Nine, the Jeffrey Tubin book about the Supreme Court was a bestseller for a long time. And Stephen Breyer has a, a book coming in a few weeks. Yeah, maybe it will show up here as well. We'll see. Okay. <laughs> Uh, then up at number six, John U. Bacon, the sports journalist, um, has written a book about the Michigan Wolverines college football program called End Zone. That's new at number six. Uh, the Michigan Wolverines are kind of in a rebuilding phase, and they just hired the um, San Francisco 49ers head coach, Jim Harbaugh. So we'll see what happens there. That one actually surprises me to see it up at number six. All I can imagine is a lot of alumni and, you know, maybe uh, they're handing it out to the freshman class. But uh, it's it's there at number six, end zone. No surprise with the next one. No surprise with the next one. Dick Cheney and his daughter Liz Cheney have a book out called Exceptional. This is Dick Cheney's third book since leaving the vice presidency. It is making a case for American exceptionalism, kind of charting his policy prescriptions for uh, restoring America to greatness. Uh, Besides just policy prescriptions, he really takes a lot of swings at President Obama in this book. All right, then. Thanks so much, Greg. Thank you, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.